I'm not gonna lie to people. It's Bintrong, man. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Rasafari Podcast. Honeymoon edition, kind of. So I know I said that before when I was, you know, doing a zoo news on my honeymoon. But uh, in this case, this is an episode that was recorded on my honeymoon and is now being released after said honeymoon. Because otherwise I would be on like a three-week honeymoon. And that would be awesome, but, you know, isn't happening. So anyway, uh, while I was out in San Diego, I was able to set up an interview with Rick Schwartz. Now, if you follow the San Diego Zoo or the San Diego Zoo Safari Park or the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, uh, then you know who Rick is. He is the ambassador for the brand. That is his title. It is Ambassador. And uh, it's really cool what he gets to do. Um, This is a really unique position that most zoos do not have. I think San Diego might be the only one that has it. And uh, I'm going to let him tell you all about it. Uh, Rick is obviously uh, a warrior for wildlife. He has traveled the globe to do stuff uh, with the San Diego Zoo. He is one of the most knowledgeable people I have ever spoken to about an institution. It is absolutely fascinating. And and one thing that I really love about this episode is, you know, people ask me all the time, what is your favorite zoo? And while we all know that I have absolute love affairs with places like Elmwood Park Zoo and the Cincinnati Zoo and the Columbus Zoo, I always have to say that hands down, my favorite zoo is the San Diego Zoo. And there are a bunch of reasons for that, which uh, I'm not going to go into all of them right here. But as you'll hear in the interview, it turns out that there's a good reason that the San Diego Zoo seems like it's so far ahead of even the the next tier of zoos. And and that's because, uh, well, it is. Like, there's an actual reason for why that is the case, and we're going to talk about it in this episode. So I'm really excited to have Rick here. Uh, When I first started doing this podcast, one of my first dream guests was Rick Schwartz, and now he is here. So uh, yay. Before we get to the actual episode, I just want to take a moment to remind you that you can follow along uh, on all the social medias at Rossafari, on TikTok at Rossafari Pod. I have become more active on there ever since uh, drumming with uh, Emily the Elephant went viral. So if you haven't been on TikTok in a bit, uh, go check out those new videos. I, I don't know how long that will last, but I'm definitely enjoying posting more on there. And of course, Instagram is my my main hub, but we're up on Facebook and Twitter as well. And hey, if you like what I'm doing and you want to support it for as little as $3 a month, you can become a patron. Go to patreon.com slash rossafari and you'll get uh, some cool perks, including bonus audio from many episodes 
including this one. So if you'd like to hear a bonus story from Rick Schwartz, then uh, become a patron and you can go hear that. All right, so I have said enough. So without further ado, here is my interview with Rick Schwartz of the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. So let's start off with you telling me who you are, where we are, and what you do here. Well, John, thanks for having me. My name is Rick Schwartz. And we are currently at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park, one of two facilities here at the San Diego area. And my position, it's kind of funny. It's it's a single word title, but uh, there are so many things that title allows me to do and has me do, but I am an ambassador for the organization. We've had a lot of ambassador animals on this podcast, but you're the first (laughs) human one. So I like that. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) So, um... Yeah, just every, I think everybody who listens to this podcast knows you, is recognizing this voice oh, wow. right now. We have all called at some point to get tickets or membership and heard you tell us <laughs> about conservation stories while we're on hold. Um, That's true. I forgot about that. <laughs> there was one day there was a long line, and I was like, wow, I'm, I'm annoyed at Rick right now. Yeah. <laughs> no, I kid. Fair enough. But, I, um, I'll own that, man. No worries. <laughs> but um, so tell me what your job description is. Oh, wow. Um, that's... That's a, it's a lot. It's like, uh, you know, the, the term ambassador, my title ambassador is like an umbrella. And then imagine a bunch of small strings hanging down from that, because in general, I think on the surface, and and as you kind of mentioned, what people might know me from is my TV appearances and uh, podcasts and radio shows and, you know, touring around the nation. Uh, we used to do a lot with children's hospitals. So I had the pleasure of going around and, and bringing wildlife and animals into these spaces for these families and the nurses and the doctors and, you know, so much of that was, I think, the the outward-facing side of it that people see. The other part of it, though, that I do a lot of work then internally is I, I work with our staff with when we have media on grounds. So I also do a lot of work where maybe I'm not on camera, but I'm assisting in coordinating our productions uh, for Animal Planet, National Geographic, BBC, you name any of these documentary you know groups that come in, coordinating them, then working with our staff. Because of my years of working in uh, animal care, so my whole start, my whole background is animal science, animal behavior, and then working as a originally a keeper here at the, the San Diego Zoo, the the knowledge of all the animal care that then started to grow also in knowledge of production. The organization kind of tapped me several times, like, okay, you're the only one that knows what the, what it is a production, a TV production wants, and then the safety protocols and the, what our staff needs. And so I, I became sort of that link between all that as well. And then it just, it's kind of other duties as assigned, depending upon what's needed for representation for the organization. I've been, I can't, I can't count my blessings enough. They have sent me to Africa two different times, uh, to Australia and, and not, it was so funny. People are like, Oh, you want Australia? You got to go check out this city. You got to see this, got to try this restaurant. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm going, <laughs> I'm going out in the sticks of Queensland. And then we're getting on a single engine plane flying over the ocean for, for 20 minutes to go to this little Island to study this group of koalas. Now, there's, there's no, sightseeing or touring. <laughs> and, but I love that. I love that. I've been to Hawaii for our bird conservation uh, sites out there. And, and the list goes on of places they have sent me that uh, I, as, as growing up, just never imagined I'd get to see in person. And, and because of my ambassador role, I, you know, I go out there usually with a videographer and we, we try and gather as much information to bring those stories back, bring those stories back to not just San Diego, but to the United States to show them what's going on in conservation, why it's needed and how it's successful and, and why we need to work together. 
I love that. And, you know, one thing that I always encourage uh, when I'm at a facility, the, the PR people that I deal with and stuff to do is to try to put more of that kind of stuff out there. Because right. every zoo, I don't care if you are the smallest zoo in the AZA or if you are you know, the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance with your cool name and everything. <laughs> Everybody's out there doing the thing, doing the work, doing conservation. I try to feature that on here all the time. But then a lot of times when you look at like social media or whatever, it's, hey, here's our cute red panda. And like, I'm here for that. I'm right. totally here for that. But also I love, um, so one of my, one of my things that I do every Friday, I have a zoo news episode, mm -hmm. which is just me blathering on about what's going on in the world of zoos and everything. And y'all are on it like every week because y'all are talking about conservation every week and actually sharing what you're doing. Um, you know, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on why that's important. And also like, what would you say to other facilities that are listening that maybe can't afford an ambassador, but could still do something, you know? Right. Well, I, I do want to point out too, it's, it's kind of this, it's this double-edged sword for the zoo world. I know just from, I, I've been with this organization for, oh boy, 21 years now, 20, almost 22. Holy cow. And have been working in animal care and animal science for thirty years. I can tell you that the they are there are press releases that go out about these lesser known animals or these con conservation programs that are going on, and they they try they try to send it out there to the world, but it doesn't get picked up, gotcha. and so it just dies on the vine, and the information never goes past them sending it out, but no one picking it up, and so and we also find in social media that a lot of times you can put out this important you know, bird species that has just been saved or this frog species that they're working to save. And it gets very little inter interaction. And so to stay relevant, you got to put those cute red pandas out there, you know? And so it's a, it's a kind of this double-edged sword that we, we try to balance on both edges. And as far as for other zoos, I, I think they know the importance. I would say for the, my colleagues that, that work at other zoos, it's more of maybe a lack of resources to be able to do the, the work they're physically doing to do the science, to do the conservation, to do the animal care, and then to turn around and spend time constructing and putting together, you know, meaningful social media or press releases or being able to engage a, a public or audience that might be there just to see the cute <laughs> and right, not right. to learn about the, the endangered toad that's very important for the ecosystem. So uh, it's one of those things where I think we're all trying and we're trying to figure out this beast of communication and how we can get that out there. And, and you know, hats off to you. I think that's a really important part of your podcast. And what you do is you are able to become that voice, that storyteller for those that are doing the work. They're too busy doing the work to tell the story. So I, you know, I think it's great what you're doing here. And, and I love the fact that you've, you've gained such a following and audience with this podcast because it's very important work. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I think science communication is essential. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, you're obviously like when I first got into this world, you were one of the voices I always heard doing that. So thank you well, for inspiring. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how did you get to do this? <laughs> like from zookeeper to, you know, a starring role on the Ross Safari podcast. How do you, <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, like talk to me about your career and your education and all that stuff. I know that Nikki Boyd said, that that y'all were very close and and she's mm -hmm. very proud of you oh. and she was on the podcast not too terribly long ago so um you know I'm just I'm curious to hear this whole story yeah you know it's it's not as exciting I think as people think it's I'm I'm just I don't shut up about talking about animals <laughs> you know I mean honestly that that goes back to my childhood it's like if if there's anything I was going to be interested in ever it was animals and I, I get the question like when did you know you wanted to work with animals and I'm like I didn't I I never. It never crossed my mind. I didn't know you could have that as a career, but 
my passion, love, and excitement and curiosity about animals has been with me since I can remember. Like, you know, when did you decide you wanted to start breathing? Well, you, you came out and you did it. I don't remember a particular moment or event or encounter with an animal that was like, that was the moment that it was sparked my interest. And a lot of people have that. And I think that's cool. But I, I just, I don't remember a time where I wasn't like trying to catch a grasshopper in the backyard or, you know, what, whatever version of engaging with the outdoors and animals. I'd go over to a friend's house, you know, or my, or my parents would go over to some of their friend's house and they'd have kids and, and whatnot. And I'd be over there playing with the cat, you know, because that's, I, I, I just love animals. So in middle school, I found out about this college called Moore Park College. Yes. And I know Nikki talked about that as well, the Exotic Animal Training Management Program. And I was like, oh, well, that's where I'm going to college. You know, I, like at that point, I was like, I need the application packet now because I want to be able to understand what I need to do in high school to get into that college. Wow. And um, I, 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 a year after, so at the time, way back in my day, because I'm not old now, um, it was a lottery system. Or no, it's not a lottery. I'm sorry. It was an interview system. It's a lottery now. It, it was an interview system. So you had to have some experience. You had to have letters of recommendation. You had to come in and have an interview with a panel to then be one of 50 people selected to start that program the wow. following year. Okay. So went through that process, got in. I was lucky enough too, that after, um, when I finished high school, the summer between high school and my first year of college, I was able to intern at the Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle because I grew up in Washington State. Okay. And my brother was living in, in the Seattle area at the time, so I was able to just bunk with, with him at his place. And that experience was very important, I think, for helping me get into Moore Park. Moore Park taught me what I didn't know that I loved, which was talking about animals. When I got to Moore Park, I wanted to be an animal trainer for anything, movie and television work, whatever it was. Just I wanted to train animals and work with animals. And uh, when going through Moore Park, part of that program is presentations and communicating with the public about the animals. And, and that was important to me because I loved these animals, but their plight and what's happening to them, if I just love on them, isn't going to help. But if I tell other people what's going on with them, maybe they'll join us in trying to conserve them. My first job out of Moore Park was exactly what I wanted in movie and television work. I was working for a company that to train animals for movie and television work. I loved it. Great people. Animals were well cared for. Like talk about like above par situation. Getting paid well because studio work is is really well paying, but I wasn't happy and I couldn't figure it out for the life of me. I'm like what? This is ex I've been dreaming of this my entire childhood. I got the exact job I wanted right out of college, which is very unheard of. I, I was just not happy and I couldn't figure out why. And then it dawned on me that when I was able to talk to people about the dog training that we were doing, I got kind of excited about that engagement, you know, and, and working with people and getting them to understand. And then I was, oh my gosh, my happiest times back in Moore Park when I was with an animal talking to the public, whether it was an outreach program at a school or a group coming on grounds, whatever it might be. And so I started then really just going, okay, that's what I, that's what I need to do. So I jumped around a couple of different jobs, landed different places, eventually here at the San Diego Zoo as a part-time keeper in uh, November of 2000. And that part-time position, about six months into it, rolled into a full-time position because a position became available. I technically had to apply for it. And then a couple of years go by, I'm in a senior keeper role, and, and the position was in the children's zoo, which was great. We had ambassador animals. We had families coming on grounds all the time that could just take an animal out and start talking to them about it. Always had an immediate audience no matter what. <laughs> and then because we had ambassador animals, our public relations department relied on us quite a bit for any studio work locally, going into the local news channels to promote something going on or talking about our conservation. Uh, radio tours or media tours. We'd go to Phoenix or, or to Los Angeles to talk about things going on at the zoo, why people should come visit the zoo when they're in San Diego. And I just loved it. 
I, you know, it was my opportunity not to shut up about animals. So now 2009, we're going to open up Elephant Odyssey. You know, now that seems like a long time ago and not that big of a deal. But at the time, that was the largest uh, area and also the most expensive area for us to ever open at one time at the San Diego Zoo. And they wanted a dedicated spokesperson for that. And the, the agreement was that they wanted somebody internal that their job would be held for them. So once this ambassador role was over, the, the campaign was launched and over with, they get to go back to their role. So I was like, oh, I'll try that because I get to go back to a job I love no matter what happens. And I can try something different. And it sounds like even a more opportunity to talk to more people about animals. And so there's a whole process to get that position as far as an interview and then an audition and all that. I ended up getting that role. And I look back and my, you know, in a years in the children's, it was a great learning ground to, to be a spokesperson. I didn't even realize that at the time. <laughs> so uh, then I went back to my keeper role at the time, wildlife care specialist now. And they asked me then the following year to come back for the polar bear plunge uh, ambassador pro or to, to help promote that campaign. And halfway through that campaign in 2010, uh, they asked me to stand up permanently as a spokesperson. And I, I can't say that I like ever had as a goal spokesperson for the San Diego Zoo. Like honestly, the goal was just to work at the San Diego Zoo. Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's the big show. But looking back at at how that happened, I was like, oh my gosh, that was perfect. Like, there was a perfect storm when there needed to be a perfect storm. There was a, a clear skies when needed to be a clear sky. There was training happening when I didn't know I was being trained. And, and I love it. I absolutely love having the opportunity now to engage at a, a big public level right now to talk about our programs. It's graduated from, you know, talking about the animals I work for directly to now everything this organization does around the world. That's awesome. Um, so when you were actually working with animals, you know, more hands-on-ish, uh, tell me about like one or two of your faves. Oh, gosh. My, my listeners love animal stories, obviously. Well, I, I hope your listeners can appreciate the fact that I've worked with over 60 different species across my career. And there are, I mean, each individual within the species is so awesome. You learn, you learn so much from the nuanced behavior of a pygmy falcon and how they interact with you versus somebody else versus you know, an ocelot or a serval or a macaw or, you know, even the personalities of different snake species that I've worked with, you know, and, and that's one thing I've always loved about my career is that I've had this diversity of species, you know, birds, mammals, and primates, or, I'm sorry, birds, mammals, and, and reptiles to work with, including primates, that it, it has just expanded my knowledge. Like every individual I get to work with just expands my knowledge, not just on the species, but then about myself and how to conduct myself when in sharing space with an animal like that and, and caring for them. And, uh, gosh, to talk about favorites, my, my go-to right away is uh, a binturong named Bandar. And so binturongs, just so you know, and I, I know it's yours too. Binturongs are my absolute number one favorite. So for many years, I would not admit that because I felt it, was, <laughs> it wasn't appropriate. I worked with all these different animals. Sure, sure. You know, I don't want to play favorites. They're all important. And then I found, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to lie to people. It's <laughs> Binturongs, man. And and that's all because of Bandar. Uh, when I first started working in the children's zoo at the San Diego Zoo, Bandar was about four years old. He was, was raised by uh, women. He had women trainers that worked with him and caretakers. And so they literally said, well, he's never worked with a guy before, so we're not sure what will happen. And for, for the listeners who may not know, sometimes the voice affect of men versus women can uh, impact how an animal reacts to you. Also the pheromones we give off and everything else, not necessarily good or bad, but just sometimes different. And so I was like, okay, well, we'll see what happens. I'll, I'll keep my mind and my heart neutral and just, you know, 
go into it and read his body language. And, and he was neutral. And I would say for the first six months of working together, he was like, okay, you've got the clicker and you've got the fruit. Uh, so I'll do what you ask. As long as you reward me, we're good. It was very much a working professional relationship. There was no sense of a connection there. And that's, that happens sometimes. Sometimes the animals are just very, that, that they're a solitary species. That's not their thing. And I did notice though, with those uh, that worked with him that had raised him, he still initiated play behavior sometimes with them. And I like, okay, well, that's a, that's a, you know, he, he has that relationship with him. I never had, I don't have that history and I accept that that's fine. And there was an evening we were working together for an event, uh, a fundraiser, and we're doing our usual routine, doing the usual stuff. And he looks up at me and then flips over and, you know, paws up on his back. And that's, that was sort of the initiating play behavior. Like, really? Okay. (laughs) So we we're finally past that threshold. Long story short, as he aged and got older, uh, he had some medical issues that required uh, getting, well, he had allergies for one, so he needed weekly allergy injections, and uh, he also became, near the end of life, uh, diabetic, so we were giving insulin shots. And as things progressed and as he got older, I was one of the few people he would allow near him, because he was, you know, he was old and crotchety and and didn't want people to bug him. You know, he's an old man, get off my lawn kind of thing. Um, but he, he still allowed me to approach him and do the, the medical necessary things, uh, to help care for him. And it was, it became over the years of working together, you know, I, the only way I can explain it is like, uh, you know, the best friend you might have at work that it, it was just, it became a very strong, deep connection. And he has my heart still to this day and he's passed away a while ago, but, uh, it's because of him. It's because of my work with him that, that close personal relationship that, um, I learned so much more about bintrongs than I ever had before. And so with that, it just, you know, every bintrong I see now, I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I completely melt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, same, right. same. They are, yeah, they are, they are up there for me. And I just, uh, yeah, I have, I've gotten to meet, uh, you know, the, the, the crew over at the zoo mm-hmm. and, um, they're all amazing and yeah. wonderful and beautiful. Yeah. And I melt every time. Yeah. Which is so yeah. good. Yeah. Um, and I love that. I love that you have a, a species that is not, common because like you said, you don't shut up about animals and no <laughs> one knows what a binturong is. I get asked when people ask me like, Oh, what are some of your favorite animals? And I say right. that it is like a, a record scratch, you know, sound effect. Like literally it's like, what, what, what is that? And then I get to light up and not shut up for 10 minutes. Right. Um, I'm currently doing project dragonfly, um, which is a, a master's in biology mm-hmm. where you're associated with zoos. And I'm sure yeah. you know about this. Yeah. And I was hanging out with three classmates and I was like, Oh, I want to go see the binturong. And they were like, I kind of know what that is. And I was like, y'all are in this. Oh, okay. Come on. And I was, <laughs> I was doing a full keeper talk at the Cleveland Metro park zoo about their binturong. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's really cool when you can latch onto a, a species like authentically, but right. also everyone knows what a lion is. There's right, still a lot right. of cool facts, but like, that's, that's really awesome. Okay. But now I'm, now I'm curious, why has it been trying your favorites? You know, it's, it's really funny. I, I don't, have you ever just looked at something and been like, I love you? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, <laughs> it was that I, I had not heard about them. Um, I, and I saw one. And it was that instant magical moment of mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm in love now, yeah. you know? And um, it's actually funny, though. I will tell you, um, talking about social media a little bit, one of my other favorites is tree kangaroos. Mm-hmm. Matchies, yeah, well, yeah. All, all of them. But obviously, I've only ever seen matchies because I haven't, haven't made it over anywhere else yet outside mm-hmm. of the, the, the country. Um, and that is directly the fault 
of right here. <laughs> we'll um, own that. We'll own it. Okay. Yeah. I, I had never heard of a tree kangaroo before. Mm-hmm. And when y'all were opening um, the Australia area, uh, there was a, an online quiz that got posted. Which Australian animal are you? Uh-huh. And I took it. And I don't know why. I never do those kinds of things. They are weird and silly and time wasters. But I was like, well, it's the San Diego Zoo doing it, so it must be awesome. And it came up, and it was like, you are a Matchy's tree kangaroo. And I was like, oh, what now? (laughs) But honestly, being one made me feel connected. Right. So that then when I came out here to see Australia for the first time, and I saw a tree kangaroo, I looked at it, and I was like, I am you. You are me. <laughs> and that's, it's so silly, but that connection instantly made me fall in love. Right. Good. And I, I, one of my biggest goals is um, there is a tree kangaroo rescue in Australia that will take volunteers, and you have to commit to a full month and obviously not paid, not getting income. Right. But one of my, my top goals in life is to go and give them a month and, mm-hmm. and spend time you know, helping rescue and rehabilitate tree kangaroos. Nice. All because of a, an online quiz mm-hmm. from here. So it's like you never know Absolutely. what's going to build a connection. Yeah, exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I post on social media about Ben Trungs whenever I can, and uh, I still even even you know n- new followers be like, oh wait, a what? What is that? I never heard of this before. You know, or even people say, you know, they'll, they've been following me for years now. Like I love it when you post about Ben Trunks. I never knew what one was beforehand. And so you're right to your point. You, you never know what you put out there will create a connection for somebody or an understanding. And that's where the true change starts to happen. You're, you're a great case study on that, you know, a silly online quiz. And now you're like, I want to go save up enough money to send myself to Australia for a month to have a working vacation, essentially. Yeah. And it's, it's exactly the thing that you were talking about too. It's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. You know, I might be able to then like fly to Sydney or something and take a little break, but probably not because it'll be expensive. To right. Do this. Yeah. I will go to a country I've always wanted to go to, to go to a place in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's, it's just, it's very cool how all of that works yep, out. Exactly. Yeah. I very agree. cool. So let's talk about some of the amazing stuff that the wildlife Alliance is doing right now. Certainly. Um, tell me things. Tell you things. <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, one of the, one of the biggest things that is, that is probably the most important, honestly, and I know it's probably not what you're looking for is, uh, we opened at the beginning of this year, uh, base camp. And that, that really is one of our first big projects to open up to the public that highlights and focuses so heavily on our hubs. And, and our hubs, it's important to understand what our conservation hubs, why we call them hubs and why we went that route. You know, for many years, it was, we're, we're talking about tiger conservation. We're talking, talking about elephant conservation. And although we do that, the reality is from, I think it's a great example. When I first started my career, it was, you go and save that animal. You go in there and say, here's the science, here's what needs to be done, and you talk to the government and you, you say, this, this is what we need to do. But the reality is, though, there are all sorts of cultures and people and human beings that reside in the same areas these animals live. And for, for us or anybody to go in and say, no, no, you need to do this now is, is inaccurate. It's not appropriate. And it doesn't, honestly doesn't work that well. We've learned that. And so why we look at hubs, we're looking at areas. And so we'll take the African savanna as an example, is it's an understanding that we want to save rhinos. We want to save elephants. But to do that, we need to look at the bigger picture, not just stop hurting them or killing them you know, or set land aside for them, but what is it that is feeding this happening? Is it there, is there, you know, for rhinos, a great example, there's a, a, a market 
that is Ill, ill-informed about what the horn can do, that it's medicinal. So there's an education component we have to look at while working with the culture. Then it's, well, what's going on with the cultures that are living amongst the rhinos? Why is it that perhaps somebody from another culture can say, I want that horn for X amount of dollars, and that person will do that? Do they want to or do they have to because it's survival? You know, Okay, so let's look at the actual conservation and care of an understanding and working with the things in that hub to then lead to the results of preserving and saving the rhino. And yes, on our side of it, I think one of the most exciting things about the rhino project right now is our rhino rescue center and our our deep study of how we can save the Northern white rhino. And I'm sure your audience is aware, but I'll clarify it because it gets confusing for many people. The subspecies Northern white rhino and Southern white rhino are different there are thousands of southern white rhinos. There are only two northern white rhinos on the planet right now, and they're under lock and key and protected by rangers with guns in this beautiful area in Kenya, but they are way past breeding age. There are two females, and they are technically the end of the line for that subspecies. Our goal is to find a way, though, to work with our frozen zoo that we have. I believe it's 12 animals or 12 individuals represented there, northern white rhinos, to create then using science we have today the opportunity to make an actual embryo of a northern white rhino and then utilize a southern white rhino as a surrogate. So to also clarify, surrogacy does not mean that they share the genetics with the baby. The embryo will be created in vitro or in a test tube or outside of the body with northern white rhino DNA. And so it will be a pure northern white rhino. But the southern white rhino being so closely related could make for a great surrogate. And so when that baby's born, it will drink the milk of a southern white rhino mom, but all of its genetics and all of its DNA is a northern white rhino. And so we do, we can do all that science, you know, on this side of it. But to ignore then the need for looking at the hub and caring not only for the cultures and understanding the people and working with them, not telling them what to do, but asking them what can we do is very different and very is more strategic. But then also looking at, well, if we're looking to save the rhino, what's going on with the grasslands in that area? Is there, are there invasive plants that we need to learn about from the pastoral communities that are out there on the ground all the time? And so it's multi-tiered, multi-layered, and allows us to really focus more appropriately on what are the action steps to reach that goal versus just you know throwing money and time at one single species only. Uh, so for me, I think that's probably the biggest and most exciting thing that we are shifting how our focus goes. And that being said, you know, we have worked tirelessly since the 70s for conservation. But socially, our audience, our guests, just wanted to come to the zoo or safari park, have a good time and go. And we would go, okay, cool. We're going to take some of the money you spent here and we're going <laughs> to we're going to help save you know animals. And and you so you keep coming to visit, but we're going to spend the money on this. But as culture has shifted in the US and around the world, we are all much more aware of our environment. We're much more aware of our impact in our environment, and we want to make sure what we do isn't doing harm, but maybe doing better. So we're now going, hey, we've been doing this for 40, 50 years. Come check it out. We are a conservation organization. Sure, we happen to have this really cool zoo in San Diego and this awesome safari park just to the north, but but yeah, we're a conservation organization. We've been doing it for a long time, and it's great because people are, are very excited to now know that coming to visit also helps all this other work. And they, they're, they're actually then donating, uh, along with coming to visit, they're donating towards this work because it's impactful and it makes a difference. 
Absolutely. That's awesome. I love that. And I, yeah, I was actually going to ask about the, the whole rebrand. So that makes a lot of sense. And that you, you, you answered the question already. So, <laughs> I mean, I, cause the hubs, I think the hub focus is really important. Mm-hmm. And I was also, you know, um, like, like I mentioned a little bit, but I came, I came into conservation, you know, from an animal or from a non-animal background. And my first thought, if you would have told me that, um, you know, an organization working with like to better the lives of humans in an area, was important to saving animals. Everyone like, no, I, I, I was very what you said. Give the money to the rhinos, you know, let them spend it how they see fit. You know? <laughs> no, but you know, like right, I know what you very mean, yeah. specific. Mm-hmm. And um, I've had to learn, sometimes kicking and screaming, that you know, if Red Panda Network can buy better stoves that won't cause fires in Nepal, then we're going to save red pandas. Right. Even though all they're doing with that particular project is buying stoves for humans, mm-hmm. it really took me. A, a while to, I understood it logically, but to emotionally accept <laughs> that, you know, is important. Um, and I think the hubs are an amazing way to do that. Yeah. I think that's very cool. And is that also why you shifted towards the wildlife Alliance, uh, terminology? Well, you know, it's one of those things where we look at where we come from and we look at where we're going and we want to make sure that that message is clear to our audience. So when I first started, it was the zoological society of San Diego that was the original nonprofit organization that started in 1916 to, to start the zoo. Uh, for those who don't know, a little, little history lesson. We had a surgeon in San Diego that after the uh, Panama-California Fair pulled out of Balboa Park, they left behind all their animals. And the surgeon who lived downtown was, the, the story is, well, it's not just a story. It's, it's, it's historical fact. He was driving uh, back from a call with his brother, and, you know, this is 1916, so you're talking open, open type, you know, motor carriage. Right, right. And he heard lions roaring in Balboa Park because they were left over from the expo. And he, and he thought, wouldn't it be great to have a zoo here in San Diego for the kids of San Diego? And I will tell you this, just knowing Dr. Harry's history, he loved animals. He, he ran away to join the circus because they, there were animals there before he joined the military to become a surgeon. Uh, so I, I think he was also talking about the kid inside of him and the other kids inside of adults. And so it was his idea to start this, this zoo, and he went to the city first, and the city's like, no, we don't want anything to do with that mess that was left in Balboa Park and those animals. So then he got some of his buddies together, and they created this nonprofit organization called the Zoological Society of San Diego and started the zoo there in Balboa Park. And the rest is, is wonderful history. But it's always been a nonprofit organization, and you look at it from 1916, a zoological society, that's awesome. You know, that, that is really bringing in the wonders of the world right here to San Diego. But as his vision grew and as the people who followed him shared in this giant moving forward vision, even early on, this is crazy to me, 1930s, Dr. Hare was like, you know, we, we, we really ought to pay attention to how we're caring for them and also be thoughtful in what we're doing, how it's impacting the wild. This is 1930s. This That's guy. amazing. 1930s, this guy had that thought, right? Wow. So by the 1960s now, you fast forward another 30 years, and we have Dr. Schroeder, who was our vet for a while. Then he went to New York uh, to do vet and zoo work and came back as our director. And in the 1960s, he's like, yeah, we should, have, we should be really thinking about setting aside large portions of land to breed these animals here in the United States so we're not taking from the wild anymore. 1960s. That's amazing. Dr. Schroeder is the father of where we're sitting right now at the Safari Park. This is his brain thought that, that came to being real uh, and it's just, it's just fascinating. I'm goosebumps just talking about it because to have that kind of foresight at that time and now to see what that foresight has given birth to. So this organization's always had this sort of forward thinking about animal care and conservation, why it's important. 
And with that, then there's an understanding we have to have partners. We can't do it by ourselves. It's silly to think we can do something this big by ourselves. So partnerships have always been a big part of it, which then put our reach beyond San Diego, beyond the United States. We started sponsoring and or spearheading projects around the world. So then it became known as San Diego Zoo Global because it had this global reach. And it was all over the world. And I can say, too, what fascinated me, you know, I travel, you can see I got a logo on my shirt, wherever I was traveling, when I go to Botswana or Kenya or Australia, people are like, oh, see it there. oh, San Diego Zoo, oh, wow, what are you doing here? People out in the middle of nowhere around the world know the San Diego Zoo. So the term San Diego Zoo Global was appropriate. But as we start to move forward in really wanting to make sure people understand what it is we do, to just say that we're global, talks more about our footprint and doesn't really shine a light on the fact that we aren't doing this alone. It's global because we have alliances all over the world. And so switching over to San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance was brilliant in the sense that it just in that simple term, it states this is an alliance. And what it allows us to also do then is guests come through the doors and say, you can be part of the alliance too. It's not just for scientists. It's not just for you know, zoo people, but anybody can be an, an ally for wildlife. And that's what's important to understand because so often people fall in love with this wildlife when they come to visit, but they don't, well, I'm not a scientist. Well, I'm not a conservationist. Well, I, I'm just a kid. What can I do? It's like, no, you, you are actually a big part of this and you can join our alliance and be a part of this too. Yeah, that's awesome. I am a big fan of brand. <laughs> um, and I, I really am. And I, I think, um, you know, I've talked about uh, on here before, but even just, you know, things like the, the phrase um, global warming mm-hmm. caused so much drama right. because, you know, we all know the person who stands outside when it's snowing and goes, oh, global warming. <laughs> and you're like, dude. <laughs> but um, I think I think branding is wildly important. And I think that, you know, zoos are still controversial. Good zoos shouldn't be. But, you know, there are there are a lot of anti-captivity groups out there. And, and I think um branding and openness and all that stuff is wildly important. And I think, yeah, that's awesome. It is crazy to me how early y'all were in making those adaptations to what zoos now are though. That's decades mm-hmm. before other facilities. And yeah. um, I've, I've said a lot of times, even, you know, this podcast wouldn't have existed a couple decades ago because right, uh, right. no, thank you. Um, and to know that, you know, y'all were doing the thing is really cool. Yeah. And I can say as someone, you know, when I joined in in 2000 and I I knew the San Diego zoo, my grandparents lived in this area and they were, they were members. So I came as a kid to visit quite a bit. And I just, I was always in awe of how awesome it was, but at that age and that time in my life, I didn't think about how did it get here or why is this one so spectacular? And as I've worked and learned more about the history of the organization and you start to realize that it's, it is the, it's the people it's the people who started the process. It's the people who keep the process going forward. It's the ideas of forward thinking. It's the bold moves, you know, and it's not that we are the only organization doing this kind of work, but to your point and to what you said, it was a very early adaptation, a very early thought process in, in sort of being the leader in a lot of these areas and then partnering with those who could help that leadership move forward and, or our leadership help move them forward either case and so, yeah, it's it's ridiculously impressive when you look back at the history of the organization. I mean, the Frozen Zoo is another great example, too, about there was this idea that, hey, we can cryogenically freeze DNA in cells, and you can say, well, what are you going to do with that stuff? We don't know yet. The science doesn't exist, but it's important. That we And now now the science exists, yeah. and we can look back on what they did in the 70s with that project and, and the 80s and 90s and go, thank God they did that, yeah. because now we can save the Northern White Rhino. Now we can do these things that if they had not done that back then, we would be starting at literally point zero. Right. 
That is that is astonishing. Yeah, yeah. that is so cool. Um, so I, I'm curious. I want to I want to um, pivot a little bit to to more of like your situation. Sure. Because like I said, I think people are curious about <laughs> the man behind the videos. And um, <laughs> what I'm what I'm really curious about is like you know you're sitting here and you are spitting facts and figures and dates and like you know this stuff. And I get it. That's your job. <laughs> but like, how much? Is it you? How much of it is a full team behind you? And I don't mean like, yes, you're all a team. I get that. But I mean specifically, you know, as you're learning about the work that you do and as you're learning talking points and how to say these things, um, how big of an organization are you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm about six foot tall. Uh, (laughs) No, there's there's not a whole lot behind me. I mean, I will say the PR team is wonderful here, and I'm very fortunate that if we are getting ready to do a, a campaign, so a campaign being that, Let's say we're going to open up base camp's a great example. Um, we opened up base camp at the beginning of this year, so I don't put together all those facts and figures and that information. I the, the PR team does the, you know three, four, five pages of information, and they hand it over to me, and then I go through that and start to ask questions about this information, so I can learn more about it. I try to anticipate the questions that I would get if I if if you know, Jody, the soccer mom with three kids wants to know about X versus the college student who wants to do this versus the, the grandparents who want to do that. Any of that, try to get inside their head and think, what would they want to know? What, if I gave them this information, what would their questions be? And so I try to ask those questions. And so, yes, the PR team is, is awesome. They put together a lot of stuff, but then a lot of it is just sitting with the information and really digesting it for myself. And that a lot of knowing what questions will be asked comes from the experience. And that's what I was saying earlier. My first, you know, nine years as a keeper, wildlife care specialist, as a, in the children's zoo, I was answering five-year-old kids' questions. I was answering a whole preschool group's questions. I was answering questions from PhD students. You, you know, we had every walk of life come through there, and so all of that experience is what I really lean on and to to be able to do what I do smoothly. But I will also say that I am just naturally curious about history of the organization and why, why are we here? So I, I've picked up, you know, I'll do it on my own. I'm at home Google searching stuff. You know, <laughs> 10 o'clock at night, I'm, I'm scrolling through my phone trying to find, you know, who did this study on this, this chimpanzee and is it actually real or is it taken out of context? You know, because this stuff, it, it just fascinates me. It's my own natural curiosity. And that's, that's one thing I've always said to everybody. It's like, whatever it is you want to do or think you might want to do, or you're even not sure, figure out what you're curious about and then just chase that down. And if you ever stop becoming curious about it, find what is new that you're curious about and chase that down. Because that's really been, for me, what has allowed for the the career path that I've had is that I've always just been chasing down the things that make me curious and then being able to share that. And, and that curiosity is also about people. How do people listen? How do people digest information? What's important to Jody the soccer mom versus Dave the PhD student, you know, or anybody, any version of that? What is it that that is going to get them to understand why they need to know that the Manchese tree kangaroo is important? You know, how what does that look like? And and so my curiosity runs basically within throughout you know behavior, whether it's animals or humans, and conservation in general, and and just animal science. That's awesome. And um, how how much animal time do you get? You know, in a given week nowadays. Nowadays, not much. Honestly, nowadays, not much. When I first started transitioning to being more of a spokesperson, uh, I would probably get at least once, twice a week of going and working with animals. 
as more of the role has moved into working with people, working with production companies, and traveling for you know spokesperson work, uh, I tend to work with people who work with animals now. So a lot of the times when we when we do any traveling, whether we go to New York or Los Angeles, I'm essentially the animal care supervisor of that team. So they're my responsibility, but it's a team of people who are with me caring for the animals that we're bringing to these programs. Um, because my role then also is to make sure I understand all the, the the things I need to convey to an audience and then working with producers and working with uh, the TV staff in general, which is a whole another group of animal species that, <laughs> <laughs> that is a different but exciting to work with nonetheless. Oh, the entertainment industry. Yes, I yes, am aware. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, do you ever just feel the need to be like, okay, look, I'm over here. I'm at base camp and I just finished a tour. Can somebody get me some Bintrong time? Oh, of course. No, <laughs> you know, our, our resident Bintrong over there, his name is Fouquet. Yes, I I've, love Fouquet. I've known him since he was a, a wee little boy Aww. when he first came to us. And uh, he actually traveled quite a bit with me too early in his life. I think the first two, two and a half years of his life, maybe even up to three years old, he did a lot of traveling with me and, and we worked a lot together and I absolutely adore him. Now he's much older, of course. And you know, he reminds me sometimes of Bandar when Bandar was getting older. And so whenever I go over there, I always talk to him, say hi, and, oh, and hang out whatever I can. But I also have to respect the fact that, you know, I don't work with him every day anymore. You know, it's not the same relationship. And I have to be very respectful of the fact, although we do have a history, that history uh, is is just that. It's history. It is in the past. And where we are now in our relationship and our knowledge of each other is different and I have to be very respectful of the fact that he has people that do work with him every day and their relationship needs to be the most important relationship. Uh, and just my own personal passion and heart does not override the the facts of how it needs to work with animal care. No, that totally makes sense. That's very cool. And um, I, I assume, you know, you've spent some time with Datu as well. The, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've, yeah. Remind me after we're done recording. Um, I have I was at the Nashville Zoo when they were um, bintlets. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I can show you some photos of, oh, of the litter as yeah. like little babies. It's yeah. very cool. But yeah. Um, yeah, I love, that's one thing I love about zoos and you must see this all the time. You must constantly, you know, be facilitating connections and stuff because like, I know, uh, I was talking to Nikki Boyd about Datu and, um, my friend Colleen, uh, at the Cincinnati zoo has Lucille mm -hmm. and they're from the same litter yeah. and they both both told me like, Oh, I have some questions about like, I would love to. So I connected those two and now they're, mm -hmm. they're shooting the poop about, uh, Bintron, yeah, you know, together. Yeah. And I'm like, this is, this is amazing. Do you get to do a lot of that kind of thing? Do you have a lot of those connections that you build? Not so much right now because the pandemic kind of shifted my traveling and, and, and connecting with people in that way prior to the pandemic though. And when we were doing a lot of work with children's hospitals. So one of the th initiatives we had here at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance was, to create a um, closed circuit television programming, 24 hours for that, that would go right into children's hospitals and Ronald McDonald houses. And the idea was that it's educational, it's relaxing, it's animals, it's staff that care for animals, talking about them, conservation stories, uplifting fun stuff. So many stories, you know, about animals that have medical conditions that get treated by our awesome vet staff that then go on to live wonderful lives are stories that these kids could really attach to because their own experience at the hospital. So part of that initiative was we would launch into these different hospital areas. We would partner with the, the regional zoo 
And that would give me the opportunity to then go to that zoo, meet the staff there, talk with them. You know, and it's as much as there are zoos all over the nation, we all know each other. Somebody knows somebody you know. They went to school together. They worked together. They were once their boss or, or they whatever connection there might be. So, yeah, at that time when I was traveling about every two weeks, going to a different zoo and different hospital, there was always this, this network of connection that was going on. And, you know, social media, too, I have to say, has offered a wonderful way of doing that as well. Whereas, you know, prior to 2007, eight, when, you know, prior to social media really starting its, its process, that just wasn't a thing that existed. You know, it was, to, you, you had to find someone's phone number. You had to know their right. name. You had to try and call the facility and say, hey, can I speak to whoever's in charge of, because I also care for them and hope that maybe you'd get routed through to the right person or they'd get that message. But now with social media, it allows for a networking also where not only sure we can share with the general public what we do, but you, you can find cohorts so well in, in what you do, whether you want to find out more about their work or, or share something you've learned with them. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so tell me about one trip that you, you know, one you've trip. been on and, oh, and just, just, yeah, anyone. Well, I would say the one that always sticks out the most to me and it's, it's hard. I don't want to, there, all of them have been fantastic. That, oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> I know which one I want to share, but I don't want to discount the others. So I will say this, the Galapagos islands is a, a heaven on earth. You have uh, multiple different water currents of cold and warm water coming and colliding there at the islands. You have a location on the planet where you're a way station for, for certain species that are traveling through in migration. You have a space that is a breeding grounds for other species. The plant life is so incredible. You have these marine iguanas that for crying out loud, they eat algae underwater, but their ectothermics have to warm up on the rocks. Otherwise get too cold in the ocean. It just, it, you cannot spend too much time there. That said, that still isn't my favorite experience. <laughs> um, it was an amazing trip, and it was an amazing space to be in. Um, you know, and then and then being out in the middle of nowhere with koalas in the wild was fascinating. Where we were, I mean, I was excited. We had there were um, lorikeets and cockatoos flying by, and I'm taking pictures of them and video them. And everyone's like, "Rick, we're here for the koala. This is koala conservation." I'm like, "I know, but these it's in the wild." <laughs> I was like freaking out, you know, because it was just so cool to see that it wasn't normal for me to see that in the wild, you know. And then, you know, goodness, when we were in Botswana, we were literally just under the, the care and wing of elephant conservationists that were there and allowed us to go into spaces that no one else is allowed to go unless they're in for conservation to track elephants the way we did, to see these herds and to be with someone who know, knew these individual animals because he had been doing this work for so long was just fascinating. I mean, it just, it just blew my mind, but to cut to the chase, the, the number one most amazing thing was when, uh, I went to Kenya. It was my second time to Africa traveling that distance. It kills me cause I can't sleep on planes. And we finally got to our final destination. We had an overnight in Nairobi and we took a small plane then out, um, to Lewa, which is this amazing, uh, conservation site that if, if you have not gone or have a not had the ability to, to look into and support. I highly recommend it. They're doing amazing work. We get to Lewa. We get to our, our, our building that we're staying in on grounds and dinner's not quite ready yet. And, um, the, the driver, our, our driver of our, uh, Sapphire rig, he's like, Hey guys, you want to go out for a little bit, a little sunset tour. And I was like, oh, I'm just kinda, I don't know. I'm kind of tired. He's like, come on, you're in Kenya. What are you going to do? I'm like, all right, fine, whatever. And we get out, and the sun's low, not quite sunset yet, but it's low. And we get out, and we come around what they refer to as elephant grass, which is this huge 
very tall, like elephants can disappear in it, tall grasses that's kind of in a marshy area. And we come around this, and there's sort of this, this bowl of land in the sense that where we were is on one edge, and it kind of went down and then swept up to some hills. And it was just littered with zebra and wildebeest and elephants and uh, buffalo and, and impala and there were crown cranes and it was like it was it was like this it was unreal to me you know it was literally unreal i couldn't i, I didn't even take pictures at first i was just sit slack jawed standing in the rig because the way it was lit and all the animals there i was just i was i don't i don't want to i don't want to go anywhere i just want to be here for the rest of my life <laughs> and that was that was also that trip too i got to meet a lot of um the the people who live in the area like this is you know we went north to Samburu which is uh, a drier area and you know we we met the folks that live there and off the land and to spend time with them to hear their songs to to spend time with their culture and even though it was a snapshot it was so impactful for me to see and be a part of that uh, if there's anywhere that I could just sign up and go I want to go back it would definitely be to Kenya I absolutely fell in love with Lewa and um, and all the surrounding areas, uh, and Samburu as well, just just beautiful, just amazing. That's awesome. And then, uh, how can people support the uh, the Wildlife Alliance? And and you know, how can people find you? All that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think uh, the easiest thing to do is just go to our website. You can visit sandiegozu.org. and and yes, that's kind of a landing site for everything. So you can easily find the conservation tab there. You can find out the conservation work we do. If there's one specific program you want to donate to. You can absolutely do that. Plan a trip to come to the zoo or Safari Park. Because we are a nonprofit organization, yes, we have to cover the cost of paying our employees and everything else that goes with that, but anything beyond that goes back into our conservation work that we do. And it's a very important part of what we do is making sure people understand that their visits to our facilities support our work worldwide. But absolutely, go to our website. You can find out so much about the different hubs, the different programs that we have and we that we're a part of, and how you can support them. And then, yeah, you can also find us, you know, on social media. Just I, I'm not even going to bother giving the handle. Just search San Diego Zoo uh, on any social media platform. You'll find it: TikTok, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We've got a great social media team that, that runs both the zoo and safari parks. Uh, social media, and it's either it's a combination of fun, but also educational. You know, they really hit it on the head every time. Is the, the, the goofy something that's going to make you laugh? The next day, it'll be something that you go on. Oh, next day, it'll be something like, oh, I want to help support that. You know, and and that's really what it's about. And then you can find me on social media at uh, Zookeeper Rick. Or I'm sorry, <laughs> that's my old name at Zoology Rick. Excuse me. We we changed from be calling our, ourselves Zookeepers to Wildlife Care Specialists a couple of years ago, and so I changed the handle from at Zookeeper Rick to at Zoology Rick. So yeah, you can find me there on social media as well, doing that. Very good. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossipari poop story. All right. You would think I probably have a wide variety of gross, nasty ones, but I think probably for me, the most surreal poop story I have was the... Um, a, couple years ago, I was on a podcast that was a science podcast, and they were asking specifically about, do all animals fart? <laughs> <laughs> so from that, you know, talk about you know, other duties as a sign, right? Talking about animal farts <laughs> for an interview. Um, from that now, there's a new Netflix show, a game show that came out, I think, last year, early this year, uh, called Bull 
not poop, the other word. I don't, <laughs> I don't know where the safety is on your, so you're good, you're I'll good. just say that. Um, the name, I guess it's technically the name of a show. So the show's name is Bullshit. And I was quoted in that for um, What Animal Has the Smelliest Farts. And for those of you playing along, it's, it's DC Lion, if you see this. <laughs> um, so, but that comes from the fact that the odor that animals give off a lot of times is because of what they eat. So probably one of the smelliest ones that I can think of, me personally, I don't like the smell of fish, is sea lions, because that's what they eat is a lot of fish. Tigers, carnivores in general, have nasty, nasty stinking poop. <laughs> uh, usually are herbivores, because they're eating plant material, not as bad. It's a little earthier smell, you know, not as sharp to our nose. Uh, but I will say this, the, the absolute worst ever experience we would do, um, we would visit locally here. We go to children's hospitals and senior citizen facilities. So we bring some animals in a van with us from the zoo, you know, a little 10 minute drive, we do a presentation, basically bringing the zoo to those who can't visit the zoo. We have an animal called an echidna. And Love echidnas. Echidnas nice are related to the platypus known as a spiny anteater because they like to eat, you know, bugs and termites. Uh, they're the only other egg laying mammal on the planet. Because of what they eat, though, insects, um, insect stool, for the most part, has a very unique odor to it. But for whatever reason, and I don't know why, echidnas will clear a space with their stool. <laughs> they are low to the ground, right? They are squat, low to the ground. And so when they go to the bathroom, in, when they poop in their crate, the odds of them not only stepping in it, but smearing it around are pretty high. So it, it's not just the poop stinks, but then they decide to wear it. <laughs> and they have quills, and in, next to the body is a bunch of tight hair. So now you've got that nasty poop in their feet, in their quills, in their hair. And I'm not kidding you. It is, it is such a sharp, horrific smell that you can roll the windows down and blast the AC and hang your head out the window, and it still makes your eyes water. <laughs> So, so that's my poop story. Poop story. For you, should you ever have the opportunity to be around an echidna, just make sure you're not the one that has to clean up if they should step in their own poop. Amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Well, there you have it, folks. Rick Schwartz is as awesome as he seems when you see him on the socials and on all the San Diego Zoo things. Uh, I just I really enjoyed that. And I would like to thank Rick and everyone at the uh, San Diego Zoo uh, PR team for getting that set up for me. That was awesome and a great way to start my honeymoon. And don't worry, it was the only work I did on my honeymoon other than homework and making zoo news that week. Okay, you're officially allowed to feel bad for Dr. Zoe Rossi, but hey, at least she gets to be Dr. Zoe Rossi now, so that's exciting. Anyway, I would like to say thanks to my Red Panda-level patron, Laura Shank. I know she'll be listening to the bonus audio from this episode, and again, you can too if you go to patreon.com slash rossafari and support the pod. And remember, friends, the word credits backwards is Steiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.